0: Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off the welcome table. There's a bunch back there. We are continuing this morning through the book of Ephesians, and I've titled today's message, By Grace. Keep it real simple. Last week was but God, today is by grace. Our main text is Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten. But let's actually start reading in the beginning of the chapter. So verse one of chapter two, just to help us keep the context for our study. Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus, he said, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. in Christ Jesus. Again, just a, a, a bit of a recap, right? In chapter one, Paul spends the entirety of that first part of his letter. And the chapter and verse references were all inserted later. Paul like wasn't plotting out all of that. Like, so now in verse five, I let me tell you about grace. Like that's all for us to have a reference point to know how to find things in our Bibles, and more easily memorized Scripture. But he just started off just praising God. God, you bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he's just like, here's what you've done, Father. Here's what you've done, uh, God the Son. Here's what you've done, God the Holy Spirit. And here's what we have from you. And just really extolling the Lord, just praising the Lord. And sort of including us in that. And then follows that up in the second part of the chapter, just thanking the Lord, telling the believers in Ephesus what he was praying for them without ceasing, and just lets us know this amazing prayer that he was praying for them. And, and I'm so thankful that he didn't just go, and I've prayed for you, let's move on. It's and And I'm kind of bad at this, because there's, like there's part of me that like when I tell somebody I'm praying for them, I I go man, I should really tell them what I'm praying for. And then oftentimes what I'll do is, I, hey, I'm praying for you, and it is clear, and it that, and I am, and I do. But what does it mean? It means something so much more when somebody is going, I'm praying for you, and let me tell you what I'm praying for, and then you hear. Oftentimes, the heart of God through that person for you, the things that they're going, I'm bringing you up to the Lord. Here's how I'm asking God to move in your life and to move in in your circumstances. And we're just like, yeah. That makes me want to thank the Lord. That causes me to want to press into the Lord. And I can only imagine that's what happened with the believers in Ephesus. As they read this, they're going, yes, yes. Thank you, God. Thank you that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave and raised him to life and ascended him into heaven at the right hand of the Father, God, that your power, I can know that power. I can have that power at work in me. And we today, almost 2,000 years later, reading the same thing, that believers for almost 2,000 years years have been reading, being blessed by, being encouraged with, being strengthened with, and we're all just going, yeah. God, do it again. Do it now. Do it in me. Do it with us. Do it in them, Lord. Giving us things to pray for. How often have you gone, I don't really know what to pray. I'm not sure what to pray in this moment. And then we come across a prayer in scripture and we're like, that is so good. I'm going to take that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to pray that. You can't pray better prayers than when you pray. You can't pray more in line with the will of God than when you pray the word of God. And so he tells them, what have you been praying for? And after doing that, and as we saw last week in verses one through three, he then Kind of describes what the spiritual condition of their lives were before they received Jesus' salvation, before all those spiritual blessings really were theirs because they weren't previously in Christ until they found salvation in Christ, right? Tells them what their life was really like, what was really going on, which describes all of us, all of humanity, before Jesus' salvation, apart from Jesus' salvation... And then went on in verses four through seven to describe what happened when God stepped in that but God phrase. But God, you did this. You made us alive. You saved us. Uh, you helped us uh, to, and positioned us even spiritually in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have a plan still to unveil your kindness and the riches of your graces, grace in the ages to come. You're doing all of that, Lord. You're going to do it. And this all just kind of helped us to see what it really meant to be uh, where we were before Jesus saved us and to know what Jesus has done even since he's saved us or what he did in saving us. And so, with Paul's prayer in mind at the end of chapter one, that we know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe, we saw in those verses last week and the verses we just read that. God's power is still the background, it's still the backdrop, it's still the context for what Paul's speaking into now, and and still is, even in what we're going to be reading in verses 8 through 10 and studying this morning. And I showed you a large quote from John Stott to begin our time last week. I'm just going to show you the second half of that quote to start our time with this week, this uh, introductory sort of thought he gave on verses 1 through 10. And he said, against the somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 stands out in striking relevance. Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism of despair and faith which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. I'm so glad, even just thinking about that, you know, the the refreshing realism of the Bible, I'm so glad that we see all the warts, all the All the things about all of the biblical characters, all the people, all all the Psalms of David, the depths of despair, the depths of depression, the heights of victory, all the the gamut of human emotion and experience. And God just, uh, just unloads it all for us in Scripture so that we would know in our circumstances, with all that we're dealing with, whatever past we came out of, God is about us. He loves us, He has grace for us, and, and it's going to become even more clear as we look at these verses this morning. And so, with all that in mind, verses eight and, uh, 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what started as a parenthetical thought or a parenthetical statement in verse 5 is now something Paul comes back to and he elaborates on because it's something that we need to know and that we need to be clear about. But even with the clear teaching Paul gives in verses 8 through 9 or 8 and 9 there are many that have a twisted view of what it means to be saved by grace. A great example of this, and we could give many, we'll just get to look at one, is those in Mormonism. You can talk to a Mormon who comes to your door, or maybe you have a friend that's a Mormon, or a coworker, or a family member, and you can talk to them and have a conversation about uh, with them and, and say, for you, do you believe that salvation is by grace? And there's a high chance... That they will say yes, that they will agree with you on that point. And there are many people who, because they've been trained in responding certain ways, that it throws you off because you think you have this great. Let me, let's go to let's talk about grace, because that's where things are really going to become clear. And you're like, well, what about salvation by grace? And they're like, yeah, no, I believe that. And you're like, wait, so, uh, wait, what? <laughs> um, shoot, I thought I had you there and we were going to really, and you're getting saved today. Um, but here's the thing. If you press further on what that means, And then you go, I do not think it means what you think it means. It's one of those sorts of moments. Um, You start to see that their definition of being saved by grace and what the Bible clearly says about being saved by grace are not the same thing. They might say to you, yes, we're saved by grace. But what they mean by that, and they might not put it in these terms, is that you work and you do all that you can and what you can't accomplish to reach that sort of point of, of salvation, God then covers with his grace to kind of fill, it, fill in the gap of what's left. You do all you can and what you can't reach, saved by grace, But that's not grace. That's still a salvation based in works, human effort. And the majority of world religions have an emphasis on works to earn God's singular, his, or God's plural, favor or acceptance, or to reach nirvana or some place of perfection, But this is a big part of what makes Christianity so unique, along with God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, giving his life for us on a cross, uh, being our our substitutionary propitiation for our sins, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us as our advocate and high priest. What makes Christianity so unique is grace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. And by that, the salvation of God, given to the undeserving and unworthy and unlovely, who can't contribute in any way to the favor, the salvation that's being given freely, is a radical, radical thing. I mean, think about the idea of reincarnation, which is not biblical, it's false. That you're coming back and you're coming back to get better and to get better and to get better till eventually you can reach that place of perfection. You've, you've figured it out finally after how many hundreds of th- or thousands of times that you've needed to come back finally. Well, what are, what's, the, what's the heart, what's the mindset behind that? That you have to do something and you have to keep trying and keep working, hopefully at some point you're going to figure the thing out and you're going to reach that place. How frustrating, how discouraging is that sort of mentality? You're in this hamster wheel of life and life, and then you die in life and you die in life. Like one life is hard enough, right? But grace is just, it just levels everyone. Because it robs us of any opportunity to go, look, I finally did it. Because we love to do that. We want to feel like we've done something. We've made something of our lives or we've reached this. I finally overcame this thing or I got to this place in life. We love that thing, whatever that is. It's in us, it's ingrained into who we are, into our being. And grace just rips it all away. This passage of Paul rips it all away. It rips the scab off, so to speak, not to be gross. To go, what you thought you had and you were going to be able to make it, you do all you can, God's going to cover the rest. Even that, to go, no way, underneath is still putrid and gross. You thought you had something and God's going to finally accept you. That's not ever going to be how it works. That's why in the Old Testament we're told that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Literally in the in the uh, original language, menstrual cloths. Our righteousness is that before God. And when we think about it from that perspective, we're going, oh, so... I really can't, there's not anything that I can do, and God's like, nope, and that's not meant to be, like, the most hopeless, like, nope, you can't, you can't, and you won't, it's not that you can't, and you won't, it's a, you can't, but I can, God speaking, I can, you can't, but I can, and I want to. You were dead. What what are dead people contributing? I've never seen a dead person working for anything. I've never seen like there's no activity, there's that's it. And I'm not trying to be morbid, but that's the that's the the picture that we are being given here. You were dead. Dead people can't do stuff. You were a slave. And slaves can't free themselves. You were condemned and you could never get yourself out of that place of condemnation. But God. And as we see here, by grace. By grace. You know that many others in most world religions lack the kind of confidence that you and I have been given because of Jesus and his grace? You could ask somebody, you know, how do you know that your gods or your God loves you or accepts you or forgives you? How do you know if you'll have a favorable guarantee of some sort of afterlife, but no one else has the same sort of confidence or promises or, or clarity like we have in Scripture regarding all of these things and more, and none of it has anything to do with our performance, our works, because those things find their answer in God's grace toward us and in us. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because of that, it's not of ourselves, it's not of works lest anyone should boast. Again, what, what could we contribute? Knowing we were dead, knowing we were slaves, knowing we were children of wrath. Nothing. Dead people can't work for anything and dead people can't boast about anything. And it's into that bleak scene that we considered last week. Again, we were reminded that but God... God stepped in, but twice in this section between verses five through eight, we're told by grace. So if it wasn't for God and for his grace, we would still be dead. We would still be slaves. We would still be under his wrath, and yet he stepped in, and he did the unthinkable and the impossible by his grace when he saved us. Works of mankind give opportunity for boasting, for pride, for taking credit for the thing that was worked for, for feeling that that thing was earned and deserved, but we didn't and we can't work for our salvation, but Jesus did. Jesus worked. And he finished that work that was needing to be done for us to be saved by grace through faith in him, when he hung upon that Roman cross in our place, and he made it clear that the work that he needed that, that needed to be done, he completed when he cried out, It is finished. Salvation is a gift of God's grace available to us on the basis of his grace alone, and through the means of faith in Christ alone. Faith is the means of us. Great grace is the basis, but faith is the means that God imparts that salvation to us. We put our trust not in a principle, but in a person. Our trust is in a person who's never failed. Our trust is in a person who is... Even now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. With all power, all authority, all dominion. Which just tells us that our trust is not misplaced when our trust is in Christ. Our trust is misplaced so often. We put our trust in all kinds of things that fail us. You've ever, like, you know, put your trust in a car that ended up breaking down? You ever put your trust in a person who let you down? And we we do that because people and things are fallible and they break and they don't last, but Jesus does. Salvation is a gift it costs us nothing it's free for us but it costs jesus his life so when we think of like a song like oh you know uh, amazing grace like yeah it is am- it's 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 infinitely more amazing even than we could ever sing about like his grace is amazing it's it's astounding it's mind blowing For the ages to come, he's going to be unveiling the riches of his grace towards us. We're going to be blown away by how amazing, how gracious our God is for all eternity. We're just going to be going, oh my gosh, I didn't even, I'm just, I'm getting it even more. I thought I knew, but God, your grace is even more astounding what you've done for me. And it is. But he goes on to say this in verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, salvation isn't of ourselves. Our works don't do anything, could never accomplish anything towards our salvation. None of it, is acceptable in the eyes of God. But in contrast to how we couldn't contribute in any way to us receiving Jesus' salvation, here we're told that God has worked, and that work being something he's done in us and with us, that we are his workmanship. In the Greek, that word workmanship is the word poema. It carries a sense of a creation object. Anything that has been brought into existence or compiled by someone, including a poetical work. In fact, that word poema is where we get our word poem from. Our God, if we weren't aware of this or maybe we've never thought about it in these terms, our God is the original creative The original creative, yes, the original creator, but he's the original creative. Mankind being made in the likeness of God, the image of God, has been endowed with creativity, a desire to make, to build, to play, to sing, to write, to sculpt, to photograph, to paint, to be artistic, to create and be creative, all things that point us back to the fact that we have been created and we have a creator. But in God's creative acts and by his amazing grace, we see that we who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ are his workmanship, his poem, that we are his masterpiece. Now maybe some of us, at different points of in our lives, because of pride, if maybe have already thought that kind of a bit of a masterpiece myself, feeling pretty good about myself, you know, and and, it's, and others of us, probably the majority, are going like masterpiece. Are you sure, Lord? Have you looked at my life lately as uh, not feeling very masterpiece-y? I I listened to a message that um, Pastor Tim Keller gave on this passage. And I just wanted to share some of the insights he gave regarding verse 10. And he, in his uh, congregation there in New York City, when he was pastoring there before he passed away, Uh, Lots of creative types there. Um, But he said this. He said, either we are an accident or else God had an idea in mind when he made us. And our job is to find out what that idea is and then walk in what it is that he has in mind for us. He said, workmanship is where we get our word poem. It means we are a work of art and God is the artist. He said, we might not like the artist's chisel as he sculpts us. I, it's not like I've watched a lot of like things of somebody um, sculpting. But he kind of gave the picture of like, you know, you're not going to have a shoulder if I don't knock this chunk of rock off. Like if you're making a bust of somebody... Like stuff has to get knocked off that we might go, but that's a real that part shouldn't go. It's not gonna look right if you chip that off. It's gonna ah we can look from afar and think, "Uh, are you sure? But the sculptor knows what he's doing. He knows what needs to be chipped off. He knows what needs to be smoothed out. So that the masterpiece he's creating with our lives becomes all he desires us to be. He, he spoke of kind of this. He said that the grace and the chisel and the hardships and our pasts and our gifts and our hurts and our triumphs are all things God uses uniquely in each of our lives to, to mold us, to shape us into who he wants us to be. So we'll be able to minister uniquely, even to the people He puts into our lives, and the opportunities He puts puts into our paths that He has specifically prepared for each of us. And I I, I love those insights. Just kind of helps put things into perspective because there might be times in our lives where we're going, God, I don't know how any of that is a part of this whole work of art thing that you're doing. It just seems horrible. I don't get how that could be part of what you're doing that somehow now is going to be used to bring you glory. Like I don't see how that that part of my life you chipping that off, you sanding that out like I don't I wouldn't have done it that way. And yet God is going, but I'm seeing the final picture. I know where I'm taking you. I, I love it that in Philippians chapter one, Paul says that the, the work that God has begun in us, he will be faithful to complete until the day of Christ Jesus. And we're looking at the in progress Right? We're looking at like the, the partially done sculpture. We're looking at the partially painted painting. And we're going, I don't know. Are you sure, Lord? And He's going, Yeah, no, I, I know. I get it. I'm seeing it. I know what I'm doing. I have a plan. Whether it's something I'm doing or I'm allowing, like it's all part of the masterpiece that I'm making of your life. And it's not just what I'm doing in you, but it's what I'm going to do through you. Because he's going, look, I prepared things in advance for you to walk in. And you know what? Let's just be clear about something. You don't have to walk in somebody else's good works. Because oftentimes we're comparing our lives with somebody else. We're going... Oh, look what they're doing. Look what God's doing. Look how he's gifted them. And then there's some expectation that that's then gonna be the same thing that God's gonna do with me or through me. And he's going, no, those are the good works that I have for them and I prepared for them. But I've got other things that I prepared for you. And and to know that there's a thoughtfulness when he says prepared beforehand. He's going, I've already thought the thing out. I've thought it out, and I've figured it out, and I know exactly what I have for you. And I don't know about you, but that's just kind of, it's freeing to know that I don't have to do what somebody else is doing. Maybe I will. Maybe you will. Maybe God will use you in a similar way to somebody else. But to not go, not to judge your effectiveness or your, um, or your value to the kingdom of God because you're not doing something that somebody else is doing but to know, God, you've got stuff for me. You've got it for me. You're working on me. You're making me that work of art. And you've got stuff For me, specifically, with the way that you've geared me, with all the craziness of my mind, with all the stuff in my past, with all the things that I'm still dealing with now, that God, every bit of it, you can use. You can use it. None of it's wasted. How many of us ever felt like, man, I just, that was a wasted thing. I don't even know how anything good could come of that. And how many of those wasted things that God has a way of taking and just glorifying himself through in our lives? We, specifically here talking about us as new creations in Christ Jesus, those who have received the new birth, we've been raised to newness of life in Jesus, have been created with the purpose with the divine care and thoughtfulness and plan of our God and who he's created each of us to be and in what he's created each of us to do. But having said that, I don't want any of us to be confused here. Paul isn't now contradicting himself after just saying that salvation is solely by God's grace and not by any works we can do. You now, what Paul's saying in verse 10 is that it is not that we are saved by works. What he's saying is that people who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are given a new identity, new creations in Christ Jesus, his workmanship. We're given a new sense of purpose, now living a life of good works as an outflow. An outflow of the salvation that we first received and that we're now walking in, that we're living out. Clearly, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. These works don't save anybody, but they are what accompanies the life of someone who is saved. I like what David Guzik said about this. He wrote, God saves us, not merely to save us from the wrath we rightly deserve, but also to make something beautiful of us. We are his workmanship, which translates the ancient Greek word poema. The idea is that we are his beautiful poem. The Jerusalem Bible translate, work, translates workmanship as work of art. God's love is a transforming love. It meets us right where we're at, but when we receive this love, it always takes us where we should be going. He said, the love of God that saves my soul will also change my life. That beautiful thing God is making of us is active in good works. These are just as much a part of God's predestined plan as anything else is. These good works are valid evidence that someone is walking as one of God's chosen. Now, I I know that some may struggle with verse 10 based off of their past sins or their present struggles or maybe because of prior leanings even towards legalism, that, that some may struggle with accepting that God saves and forgives and accepts them on the basis of his grace, because of what they've done in the past. That some may struggle with accepting that they are new creations in Christ Jesus, God's masterpiece, God's work of art, because of their present struggle. And may have a hard time reconciling that truth with wherever they're at presently, In the process of sanctification, God is working in their lives presently. That some may struggle with receiving this truth that they're created in Christ Jesus for good works because they've come from a background maybe or or a leaning towards legalism. And it can be difficult to not drift into that spot or maybe drift back into that spot where the good works become a source of self-righteousness or an earning of God's acceptance through the good works, or maybe even a judging of what others are doing or not doing because of what you are doing or not doing for the Lord. But this verse is not meant to create an inward struggle in someone who is God's workmanship. Instead, it's meant to ground us in the truth of what God has done and what he's still wanting to do in each of our lives. It's meant to encourage and comfort our hearts as we consider what it means to be a poem that God is writing, a masterpiece that he is making, knowing that we are not an accident, that we're loved and cared for incredibly by our master artist, our God, Yahweh, And meant to cause us to press into our Lord even more, both in his word and in prayer. Wanting to know and see the good works that he's thoughtfully and graciously prepared for us. And wanting to walk in those good works by faith, by his grace, and by the power of his spirit. Now, the natural question many of us might have when reading this is, well then, what are the good works that God wants me to walk in? Can we just like, just list it all out? If you list it for me, I'll make a list and I'll start checking the boxes. If it's not on the list, I'm not doing it. And God knows that, right? He knows how we work. If it's not explicitly there, well, I don't know. Do I really need to do that? Why that? was asked in scripture, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Let's define it. Because if you can define it, I can find a work around it. Oh, well, you didn't say that person. You didn't say in that circumstance. So well, I don't have to love them. We could do the same thing with works or good works, right? I like what William McDonald said about this, though. He gave a really good description. He wrote, but but the question arises, what kind of good works am I expected to do? Paul answers, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God has a blueprint for every life. Before our, our conversion, he mapped out a spiritual career for us. Our responsibility is to find his will for us and then obey it. We do not have to work out a plan for our lives, but only accept the plan which he has drawn up for us. This delivers us from fret and frenzy and ensures that our lives will be of maximum glory to him, of most blessing to others, and of greatest reward to ourselves. He said, in order to find out the good works he has planned for our individual lives, we should... Number one, confess and forsake sin as soon as we are conscious of it in our lives. Number two, be continually and unconditionally yielded to Him. Number three, study the Word of God to discern His will and then do whatever He tells us to do. Number four, spend time in prayer each day. Number five, seize opportunities of service as they arise. And number six, cultivate the fellowship and counsel of other Christians. He went on to say, God prepares us for good works. He prepares good works for us to perform. Then he rewards us when we perform them. Such is his grace. I, I love what he said about what we should do in order to find out the good works God has planned Uh for our individual lives i would encourage you and each of us write down those things or maybe take a screenshot or take a a picture of the screen come back to that come back to those six things he listed there and 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 uh apply those things in your life but but again with the backdrop that the context of paul's prayer at the end of chapter one for us to know god's power we need to know that his power was not just at work in saving us, making us us who were dead alive, making us who were slaves free, making us who were children of wrath, now children of God, but that his power is at work in us, sanctifying us, changing and transforming us, making us that masterpiece that God desires to make us into. And that his power is at work in us, in empowering us to live as those new creations in Christ Jesus, empowering us to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And we began with a quote by John Stott, but I want us to close with a quote from John Stott as he wrote this in his final portion of commentary on these verses. He said, Thus, the paragraph ends as it began with our human walk, a Hebrew idiom for our manner of life. Formerly, we walked in trespasses and sins in which the devil had trapped us. Now we walk in good works, which God has eternally planned for us to do. The contrast is complete. It is a contrast between two lifestyles, evil and good. And behind them, two masters, the devil and God. What could possibly have effected such a change? Just this, a new creation by the grace and power of God. The key expressions of the paragraph are surely but God, verse 4, and by grace, verses 5 and 8. Paul was under no illusions about the degradation of mankind. He refused to whitewash the situation For this might have led him to propose superficial solutions. Instead, he began this paragraph with a faithful portrayal of man as subject to three terrible powers, namely sin, death, and wrath. Yet he refused also to despair because he believed in God. True, the only hope for dead people lies in a resurrection. But then the living God is the God of resurrection. He is even more than that. He is the God of creation. Both metaphors indicate the indispensable necessity of divine grace. For resurrection is out of death and creation is out of nothing. That is the true meaning of salvation. And listen, as the worship team comes comes back up, what God has prepared for us He will also enable us to walk in, to live out by his grace and the power of his spirit. We considered last week, again, the importance of the phrase, but God. Today, considering the importance of the phrase, by grace. But but both of them point us back to our amazing Lord and Savior, Jesus as we consider all he's done for us and in us and wanting to do through us. And I don't know, there's a, there's a lot, at least for me. There's a lot here to both encourage and, and challenge me and, and us. And my prayer, and something I pray for us often, is that we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Growing in his grace, standing strong in his grace, extending his grace to others, but also declaring to others that they can be saved by grace through faith in Christ, just as we have. And, you know, a grace, a, a gift can be refused. We can go, I don't, I don't want that. If you've ever had somebody like offer you something when they're walking down the street, you're like, I don't know what that thing is. I don't want it. But we're told what it is. We're told what the gift is. We don't have to wonder is this gift going to hurt me? Is this harmful? Is it a joke? Is it some sort of a trick? No, it's the most amazing thing that you and I could ever receive the salvation of Jesus by grace. And, you know, on one hand, for those of us that are saved, And I love that he said, for by grace, you have been saved. So in Paul's mind, he's going, you already have the confidence of this salvation, which for us should go, I I shouldn't be freaking out and wondering, but am I saved? Am I? Am I? It's like, have you received Jesus's offer of salvation? Have you put your trust in him? Have you surrendered your life to him? If you have, you have been saved. You're no longer dead. You're now alive. You're no longer a slave. Now you're free. You're no longer under wrath. You're now seated positionally in the heavens with Christ. Stand upon that. And as we think about the grace of God, do not let these things kind of just become dull in our hearing. Like, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I've heard this. Yeah, I've, I've memorized this passage maybe even. That we would be struck with how powerful and amazing these verses are, what these things mean for our lives, and that we would more and more submit ourselves to our amazing potter. You and I, we're the clay. We're the clay. And according to what Paul's saying here, he's making something beautiful and masterful of our lives, each of us. And he has stuff for us, good works, that he's prepared. And he's just going, just walk. Just walk in them. Just take the next step. And take the next step. And watch what I do. And so God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your grace. God, your grace truly is amazing. God, there's nothing like it. There's There's nothing like it because there's no one like you. Truly, no one like you. Every other so-called God, every other so-called Messiah or Savior, there is no one that comes close to being anything like you are. God, the only true God, the only true Savior, it's you, Jesus. And Lord, today we just say thank you. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Jesus, thank you for for providing it. You worked for it. You finished the work on the cross. You paid our debt in full. So that all we could do is just come to you and say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. I receive what you have for me. And Lord, for those of us who know you and love you and are saved by you already. Lord, God, help us to see what those good works are. Help us to just walk in them, Lord. And would you give us the power power to do it by your spirit. But God, if there's anybody, Lord, here, maybe joining us online. God, they've, they've not been saved by your grace. Maybe they have a knowledge of you. Maybe they've spent time around you. They've viewed you from afar. They, they've seen you at work in someone else's life. Maybe they've been to church even all their life. But God, if they've never received your free gift of salvation by grace, that Lord, even now, they would just see, they know. Lord, where they're at, they'd see their need for you, Lord Jesus, that they'd humble themselves before you. Surrender their lives, Jesus, to you and your lordship. And just in their own hearts to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm a sinner. And Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation, your free gift of salvation. Jesus, I put my trust in you today. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, would you raise me to newness of life? Would you make me a new creation in Christ Jesus? And Lord Jesus, would you help me to live for you? I just encourage you as you've done that, the Bible gives us a guarantee. We can know that we're saved. We can know that we're forgiven. We can know that our, our position and our, our, uh, our eternal destiny is secure, that heaven awaits us. The Lord, if we do that, God, you're saying, Lord, we can know that we're saved. So, God has saved people this morning. We want to respond your salvation we want to respond to these truths about you what you've done lord by just worshiping you thanking you lord praising you giving our hearts to you and surrender even this morning once again and so father we thank you we give you this time in jesus name amen